this evening is love, sex, and awakening. Did you all know that? No. Yes, some did, some didn't. So if anyone wants to leave, you're welcome. I'd like to start a little bit with uh, some of my own personal story around this and why this has been of relevance and interest to me, and then kind of jump into some of the, the ways of practicing with it and how it's related to the Buddhist teaching. So it's going to be a mixture of, of um, my own personal journey, Buddhist teachings, and ways of practicing. Um, I was introduced to the Dhamma when I was 17 in the University of California of Santa Cruz. And I was sitting in a class that Jack Engler was teaching on religions of India. And I remember vividly, you know, what it was like being in that class. You know, after about a week, I remember feeling like somebody had taken a match and thrown it on a, on a bonfire that was doused with kerosene. I was ignited, you know. So even though it was in a, a lecture hall on a university campus, there was a sense of, you know, this is really fundamental to my life. This is central. It was clear. And after a month of being in that class, I had a, I had a vision of being a nun. It was like a dream, except that this dream kept on coming back, and sometimes it would be in the daytime, and sometimes it would be while I was wide awake. So it felt not like an ordinary dream. And I am Jewish. I'm 100% from Jewish ancestry. We don't have nuns. We have no idea what nuns are. We have no context about that. And so I had this vision without any cultural context of what it meant or what they were like or where they were or how to find them or how they lived. I had no knowledge. But I had this deep, heartfelt sense that what it meant was to give my life to the realization of the truth, to wake up. And that was right. So that was right. So that year, in 1979, when I started meditating, I uh, started going on 10-day retreats, and I, I started a daily practice. And so from the very beginning, there was a kind of deep dive in, like, yes, you know, sign me up. I wanted, you know. And a mind that was completely focused on, it's clear, I want enlightenment, you know. It's like if I could have a number one thing that I want to do, it's like this is where I want to go. So it was like a beeline, determined effort towards enlightenment. But one of the things that was interesting for me looking back is, is that when I was 17 years old, my idea about enlightenment was is that everybody would love me and that I wouldn't suffer. And, you know, certainly you can ascribe a certain amount of that to just normal 17-year-old naivety, you know. 
But actually, what that was, was much more telling than just the simplicity of 17-year-old naivety, in terms of it was revealing a deep-seated hunger for love that I um, had no real language to articulate. And it's taken me decades to really get a sense of what this is all about, where it's coming from, and how to work with it. So the determination was ferocious, and it was motivated from a whole variety of different things. So if I looked at, you know, what I was sitting with in that class when I was 17, it was a real rich mixture of a whole lot of different hungers and longings and suffering, experiences of suffering. So even at the age of 17, by 17, you know, my, my parents, I'm in first generation, my parents were first generation immigrants, so my grandparents all were from Eastern Europe and had fled because of pogroms or the hostility, the oppression towards the Jewish people. And I, my parents were first generation and grew up in a context where they were in families that were trying to assimilate in this culture. And then there was a divorce when, my, when I was very young and having to assimilate new families. And there was all kinds of complexity in that, including betrayal and blackmail and difficulties in my family dynamic. Then I was sitting with um, issues of sexual injury and wounding, and I had no awareness of that. It was, it was not clear to me that that was there. And, you know, there was a, uh, I had been by the side of a, of a very dear friend of mine when he came back after avenging the murder of his best, best friend and watched what happened to him in that. So even though I was young, there had already been a lot of suffering that I hadn't seen, but I didn't have the tools or the resources to, to deal with it. And so when I came across this class and these teachings on the Dhamma that spoke about suffering, there was on one hand the normalizing of something that I didn't even have the language to know or to describe or to say. And on the other hand, there was this possibility of of the ending of suffering, which for me was like extremely compelling, you know, the ending of suffering, even the suffering that I couldn't even speak about. Just there was this intuitive sense of this stuff runs deep, you know. It's pervasive. It runs deep. So that was part of what was so compelling for me, was it was matching and meeting my own personal experience. And so in that beginning years, or those many beginning years of this ferocious determination, there was a distinct sense that if I meditated long enough, hard enough, and could realize this enlightenment experience that I was told was the promise of the meditation, then all of my problems would be okay, would be resolved. I wouldn't suffer anymore. And so that was part of the reason why, for me, there was this single-minded, focused determination on meditation, thinking that if I did this, then everything is going to sort out. I'll be all right. Now, in that class, um, Jack Engler was talking about Deepama, and Deepama was born in Bangladesh and emigrated at the time of the partition in India to Calcutta, what was then Calcutta. 
And, um, and as was the custom of, of, of India in that time, was betrothed at the age of 12 to somebody who was an, an arranged partner, arranged husband. And he was 25 at the time she was 12. And they got married, and he immediately went to go to Burma to work, I think, as an engineer. And she went to go live with her in-laws, who were not particularly kind or welcoming. And so, you know, this was a common story for women in in the Indian uh, continent, that once they were married, they went to live with their in-laws, and they were experiencing this, you know, extraordinary separation from their family. And that was the same for, for Deepama. Her name actually wasn't Deepama at that time. Um, Deepama was the name that came to her later. Anyway, when she was 14, she ended up reuniting with her husband and they went to Burma together. And, you know, her parents, she came from a very loving family and very de- her grandmother was very devout Buddhist and so they would give alms to the monks regularly. And they taught her, you know, all of the things that she needed to know about being a good wife. However, nobody said a word to her about sex. She had no idea what it was. So her husband was given the honor and privilege and joy of explaining this to her. And she was completely mortified. It was like shocking, you know. And so for a year she was terrified you know, to have anything to do with him or to get near him or to be close to him in any way. And then eventually they fell in love and eventually they were able to engage in in marital relationships in that kind of a way and it was not an issue. But she didn't conceive children. Now, for an Indian woman not to conceive is not just, you know, a grief, which it would be for anybody who wants to have a child and can't conceive. It's a, a complete tragedy. And so her in-laws, after many years, conspired to have their son marry another woman and abandon her. And so she found out about this. You know, and you can, I, I don't know what it would be like for you to imagine having your family conspire to have you abandoned. But for me, it certainly is activating. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't rest very easily with me, you know. But he was a solid and strong and kind man and was clear. He did not marry her for her capacity to bear children and this is not happening and just, you know, forget it. This is not part of the deal. So he stood by her side and eventually, after 20 years, they finally conceived a child, they bore a child. And so she went from this persona non grata to somebody who had stature, the stature of a mother in India is a really significant status. And that child died. And so then she was catapulted into grief for the loss of this child. Eventually another child was born, and that child's name was Deepa. So Deepa Ma means the mother of Deepa. And then there was another child, a boy child, that was born, and also that child also died. And so her husband was taking care of her, and when the child, these children died, her health collapsed, and she went back into a place of real despair and grief. And so in a period of 10 years, she lost two children. Her husband's health collapsed, and he died taking care of her. 
Her parents died. She was in a foreign country. She didn't speak the language. And, you know, her whole world kind of just collapsed. But because of her experience with monks when she was a young girl and her grandmother, she had a strong connection with the Dhamma and wanting to, or an intuition about practicing. So she wanted to learn to meditate. And when she did, it was not very long before her mind opened up and she experienced the first stage of enlightenment and was transformed from being somebody who was sickly and dependent and weak and desperate to somebody who was radiant and luminous and independent and many of her health issues had resolved. So in that first class, I'd heard about her and there was a lot of things about her that was really compelling to me. For one... All of the other teachers that I'd heard about were men. But for another, there was something about her and the depth of her suffering that really kind of, it wasn't just her suffering, it was the transformation of her suffering that somehow resonated with me as being, oh, wow, I wanted to meet her. I wanted to meet her. So I decided or made a determination or aspiration in that class in 1979, I wanted to go meet her. So nine years later, I was finally able to go on pilgrimage. And that happened after I had been living together with my boyfriend for a year and a half. And I was like beside myself because here's this relationship that's close and loving and intimate and that my heart was pulling me towards leaving and wanting to go on this unknown journey for an unknown destiny for an unknown period of time, really to explore this hunger about being a nun. And I thought I was insane. I mean, really, I genuinely thought I was insane. I'm giving up something that is familiar, that is loving, that is solid, that is stable, that is wholesome, for something that is unknown, that is uncertain, that is foreign, that is far away. I thought I was nuts. But I trusted my intuition enough to be willing to tolerate the feeling that I was nuts. And I left. I did. I went. I gave away all of my belongings. I quit my job. I bought a one-way ticket. I said goodbye to my boyfriend. I said goodbye to my families. And I left. And I got to meet Deepama. And I had all kinds of experiences. And one of them was a very close encounter with death. And so the combination of the close encounter of death and meeting Deepama was incredibly energizing because Deepama even though she had attained high levels of realization and was very, very free, the thing about her that was so empowering or impactful or noticeable was the quality of her love. It was like, here's this person whose physical body was tiny. She was like four feet eight or something, you know, just tiny, but huge presence. And the main thing about the presence was this love that was like suffusing everything. It was like like being in the middle of this vast ocean of love, which is not something that I had ever experienced before. And so again, there was this mixing for me about there's something about awakening and love where at least in this particular person they've come together. So it was a very um, inspiring connection to recognize here is a profoundly realized being, and yet the main thing about her that I'm sensing, seeing, noticing, 
is this radiant quality of love. It's like, yes, this is what I want. You know, this is what I want. So after a long journey, I went back home and said hello and goodbye to my friends and my family. And I went to England where I asked to be part of a nun's community and train, which is part of the Ajahn Chah uh, forest tradition. Um, so Josh Korda and Noel Levine and all of these people who are part of the Dharma punks, you know, Ajahn Chah was one of their main teachers. So it's similar tradition. It's the same tradition. And living in the community with the nuns for many years, there were many, many things that were very interesting for me. And one of the things that was very interesting for me, which is not at all intuitive, is, is that when I became celibate and started living in the monastery, my understanding about sex increased logarithmically. You would not think that that would be the case. But it totally became the case. And part of the reason why is because... In our normal lives, there's a lot of dispersion and there's a lot of distraction, and so our energy is scattered, okay? And the ability to engage in sexual relationships where there is sexual release does not necessarily mean that there's the capacity to track what's actually happening. We're engaged in a, in a, in a connection and the ability to engage and the ability to release. But meditation has the capacity to focus attention, and so the other thing that is really interesting is, is that for most of us, we associate sex with sexual activity. And what I was discovering is, is that that actually is not the case. Sex has more to do with our life force, which is independent of our activity. And so as a celibate person, I was very aware of the, uh, the life force, its movements, and the way it was impacting me and how it was connected to sexual energy and the energy of love and the energy of anger and the energy of desire. And all of that was happening independent of my ability to engage and release it. So in that level, sex was not just about activity, it was about life force. And as a celibate, I was just as much involved with working with this energy, in fact more so, because it got stronger. So that's the other thing that people think. You know, I also had this idea that when you go to a monastery, there's some kind of a laser on the front gate. You walk through it, it freeze-dries your sexual organs, and they fall off. <laughs> and that once you're in the monastery, it's like, this is not an issue. Well, I have news for you. This is not what happens. There is no laser. It does not freeze-dry, and it totally is an issue. It's an issue until it's no longer an issue. It's like, you know, and what happens is, is that for me, it got a lot stronger. And part of that was because as a teenager, I've been working with Kundalini. And Kundalini in, uh, is as the latent energy that potentizes everything. And so if there's sexual desire that's present and the kundalini is active, it makes it a lot stronger. A lot. A lot stronger. <laughs> so as a celibate, it's absolutely clear in the context of living as a monastic that releasing it intentionally is not within the remit of options. That's not happening. So you've got this huge energy and not the normal ways of releasing it. We need to become skillful in working with it. Yeah. And so then we develop you know, the meditation techniques and we develop different ways. And then we begin to see, or at least for me, I could see that like, you know, 
you can notice that when you get frustrated because you don't get what you want, you get angry. So when desire is frustrated, it often changes into something else, like anger or irritation or grumpiness or crabbiness. And so energy by itself does not say differentiated in the original form in which it was arisen. It can change. And so somebody who's skillful can know that and can work with something so that if sexual energy arises, like as a celibate, and we're not releasing it sexually, we can release it through work. We can release it through devotion. We can release it through generosity. We can release it through creativity. We can release it in different ways. So that we can moderate the energy without actually, and stay within the boundaries of our precepts. Which is one of the reasons why I have found living as a celibate so incredibly powerful. Because when there's a clarity about the boundary of how this energy is expressed, then it requires much more skill. Because when we can do what feels easy for us, it doesn't mean that we necessarily develop skill. Now, what was really instructive for me, fast forward many years, I was in the monastery for 20 years, and there was this big, huge rupture that happened, and I left the monastery and came back to the United States on my own, without support, without resources, without funds, without an international network, without a teacher, without a lay community, without a sangha support. Now, as an alms mendicant that lives entirely dependent on the support of others, this is a vulnerable position to be in. And I came because I had confidence that I would somehow find a way through, and I was scared for most of the time. It felt like I was hanging by a piece of dental floss over a 10,000-foot crevasse, and I was absolutely scared to death. And a lot of the times, I just have total meltdowns and just be sobbing and thinking, you know, this is not just difficult. It feels totally impossible, you know? And then I would say, well, let's go to the rocks and just settle down and relax and see what comes of that. And so for three and a half, four and a half, five years, there's been this battle You know, should I stay? Should I not stay? Should I be a nun? Should I not be a nun? This is really, really, really hard. Okay. So in those first years when I came back to the States, what happened was is I fell deeply, passionately, and madly in love with somebody. Now, as a nun, this is a bit of a problem. (laughs) And so, you know, I've been meditating for how many years now? By this time, 30 years? You know, I have a few tools in my bag of tricks. So I took out all of my tools to see if I could make this disappear, go away, vanish, and it was like, no, it's not going away. You know, nothing I did actually touched it. So I thought, okay, if it's not going to disappear with my meditation tools, then maybe this is a sign. You know, I've had lots of doubt. Maybe this is a sign I should disrobe and I should lead the life of a householder and be involved in intimacy and in relationships again. It's not like I don't know what they are, but maybe this is just a calling, you know, that it's time to change. So I thought, okay, let's change. Instead of trying to make the meditation get rid of this, why don't I use my imagination and then welcome it? So I said, let's go for it. Let's take this and really walk through the door. What would it be like to be in an intimate relationship? Now, I have no shortage of imagination. I'm very good 
at imagining things and fantasy and all the rest of that. And I gave myself complete permission to walk through the door of imagination of being intimate. And naturally, there's all kinds of things about that that are incredibly pleasurable. But that's not the only thing that I noticed. One of the things that I started to notice was the incredible hunger for sexual intimacy was deeply connected to the level of vulnerability that I was experiencing and wanting to be held, wanting to be seen, wanting to be safe, wanting to be protected. And then I thought to myself, this is not the first time I felt this. When else have I felt this? And so I used my discernment in the imagination to track some of those other experiences of a similar level of vulnerability. And what I kept coming back to was that there were things that were in my own childhood that were very similar. And then I began to see, oh, this is not so much about this person. It's about me. That I'm sitting in this situation of excruciating vulnerability that is activating a time in my early childhood of a similar level of vulnerability. And this incredible hunger to connect is part of my longing to heal. And then I saw, okay, there's a choice here. And the choice is, how do I want to work this? Because I could see that if I brought the qualities of care and love and affection and attention and holding that I was hoping to get from this person who I was presuming was outside, I could bring them to these qualities that were inside, and I could watch what was happening. And what I observed was is that it wasn't a magic wand, it wasn't a magic bullet, it didn't disappear immediately. But with, over time, sustained clarity and effort, the sense of wanting from outside softened, the sense of fullness and wholeness and healing inside increased. And I began to relax in my own skin and feel more content and comfortable with what was arising for me. Now, how does this connect with the Buddha's teachings? Well, we know that one of the things that the Buddha talks about is is, is that desire is one of the (coughs) root causes of the cycle of suffering perpetuating. And when I have read the suttas, and I'm not a scholar, and I don't read the suttas very much or very deeply, or haven't done for, I'm not not well immersed in them, so I don't know large numbers of them. The kind of desire that I see the Buddha referring to is the desire for uh, sense pleasure, the desire to become someone, the desire to not be. The desire to become someone is the desire to feel important, the desire to have status. The desire not to be is like the desire not to feel, not to know, not to want to experience something. 
But I never have seen in the suttas the hunger for relatedness, the hunger for connection as a desire. And so in my journey, one of the things that has happened for me is is, is that I have realized that just the simple capacity to observe, which is the powerful tool that meditation brings, has not been sufficient to be able to give me access to all of the things that I was uh, working with. So I could see that there was desire and that there was suffering, but I wasn't able to understand what was going on and to unravel the suffering that I was experiencing. So certainly the teachings talk about desire and they talk about the way in which desire is a root cause of suffering. But I was opening up a whole territory of my mind-body psyche that I didn't have access to and that meditation wasn't helping me have access to. So at some point, I realized that doing more of the same thing is not going to give me a different result. I need a different way. And so I started looking at different kinds of therapeutic approaches that would help me get more handle on what was going on. And I also, at that point, was moving into living in close proximity with the bush and the nature. I was living in Australia for a few years and began to get a feeling for how the nature can be a mirror of my own mind and help me come into a different relationship with my body and open, give me access to parts of my mind I didn't, I didn't, I didn't experience or didn't have easy access to before. So what I began to notice was there was like this kind of archaeological layers of fear and anger and fear and anger and fear and anger and fear and anger and and underneath all of that, this self-hatred. Underneath this bright, smiley, confident face that I showed to the world. And I had no idea these things were there. Just no idea that they were there. So when I look at what was going on from a perspective of looking at the Buddha's teachings and then also looking at what was going on in myself, I can see certainly that the aspiration to awaken was, is, an, is, a, is a noble aspiration, but part of it was being fueled with the desire to, to not have to feel the suffering that I was experiencing. And the different kinds of therapeutic approaches as well as the contact with nature began to help dissolve this rigid way I was relating to the idea of enlightenment and help me begin to get a sense of myself in relationship with the world around me. Because what was happening when I was in nature was that the solid sense of me started to dissolve and there was just a sense of... Initially, it was a sense of me being in a friendly and welcoming nature. And then there was a sense of then just nature. I couldn't locate me as being separate and independent in the flow of nature that was just arising. This relatedness in nature gave me the support basis for looking at the ruptures of relatedness that I had experienced in my early childhood for a variety of reasons. The ruptures in relatedness that I had experienced in my early childhood 
was manifesting as the hunger to connect intimately with another person through sexual intimacy. When there was clarity and discernment about what was arising and the ability to direct attention to the cause of the problem rather than to the symptom of the problem, then things started to shift and rather than hungering for something that was outside, there was more ability to rest in the present with what was here and less need to try and fix or fill or figure it out. Awakening has many different facets to it. Just as love has many different facets to it. And sex has many different facets to it. All of them have many different facets to it. None of them is one size fits all. Some qualities of awakening is the ability to bring balance, the ability to generate qualities of loving kindness, of compassion, of joy, of equanimity. Some qualities of awakening is the experience of non-separation, the sense of being connected to and non-separate from the world around us. And certainly, when I was watching Deepama, you know, one of the things that was apparent to me was is, is that, you know, when all of the stuff fell away, what was left for her was just this radiant love. And it wasn't focused on an individual. It was just radiant. It was available to everyone. It was radiating everywhere. And this is another characteristic or facet of awakening this quality of love, which is radiant. And so, in sexual intimacy, when there's closeness and heartfulness and tenderness, there can be a sense of dissolving the boundaries that separate me from you. And certainly, in sexual release, the way that physiological response takes place is is that there has to be a sense of letting go of separateness. But the physiological, the psychosexual experience of sexual release that allows the experience of non-separation is because of letting go into pleasure. And so while the sense of separation is real, it's not 100% true And while it's true, it's not 100% stable because it comes through releasing into pleasure rather than releasing into emptiness. The experience of awakening, the experience of meditation is to understand how the ego can dissolve. And when we understand how it dissolves because there isn't anything inherent in it, then there is a sense of non-separation that results. But that non-separation that comes from meditation is not contingent upon the release into pleasure. And as a result, it can be a lot more stable. Now, one of the things that's completely cliché is that people think celibates are sexually repressed. 
I mean, it's like so cliche, it's like hardly even worth talking about. And there are celibates who are sexually repressed. You know, I can say that that would be true. But what isn't ever or often or rarely spoken about is how people who are sexually active are often spiritually bypassing. Because the connection and the intimacy that can come, the sense of non-separation that can come fairly easily through sexual activity is really the territory of awakening. But in awakening, it can be stabilized. In sexual activity, it just activates the hunger for more. Because that feels, this feels so good and so comfortable and so much like home, that certainly I just want more of it. And so without clarity and discernment that is brought into the experience and what's actually happening, then the pleasure and the release into the pleasure and the experience of non-separation that comes from both of those can activate an addiction. But this is how I feel whole. Now, I have a very dear friend that I have known for 40 years, and he and I have been having this conversation for 40 years. <laughs> and I love Bert. I totally love Bert. I always have loved Bert. Bert's fabulous. And his experience is slightly different than mine because he's gay, and as a gay man, his world has been different than as a celibate nun. But because he's a practitioner, there's been lots more in common in terms of our explorations and where we are meeting than the differences of our particular lifestyles. But he also has a lot of contact with different people because he's a massage therapist. And so he knows people, and he knows them very well. He knows them very intimately. And one of the things that he was telling me is he was saying that it's very common with addiction But there's not just one addiction, there's more than one addiction. And he was saying that it can often be the case that for people who recognize that they have one predominant addiction and then eventually discover that they have a second addiction, that the addiction towards love and sex is a lot deeper than the first addiction. Because that hunger to feel whole to feel nourished, to feel supported and connected, to feel non-separate is a deep-seated hunger that we have. Now, one of the things that my own personal journey through the therapy that I've done, through the observation that I've done, through the reading that I have done, has taken me into the exploration of attachment theory. That the way in which we our relationship with our primary caregiver as, in, as, as infants and as young children had ways of, of, of shaping our conditioning and shaping our worldview and shaping our sense of who we are. And so when there isn't a secure attachment in the psychological sense, then oftentimes there's either an anxiety about having our needs met or a feeling like it's only up to us to figure it out, that we can't ever rely on somebody or that we, we, we don't need love. 
you know, because we can't tolerate the feelings of vulnerability that we experienced as infants when our needs were not responded to with the kind of sensitivity or attunement or consistency that would allow us to feel comfortable and confident and self-regulated. And so the hunger towards sexual intimacy can be a natural movement towards wanting to repair the woundedness that we had as children. But what can happen when we engage in sexual intimacy is that the pleasure can evoke the lack. And so from the experience of intense pleasure, then all of a sudden we can have these mind states of craving and wanting and wanting somebody to hold us or fear or anger or resentment. And it's really confusing what on earth is going on. Now, it would be confusing for ourselves, and it's probably triply confusing for our partners. But that is often what happens in sexual intimacy, is that the relationship moves between times where there are two adults that are relating to each other, to all of a sudden something activates one of them, and then you've got a child in consciousness that is manifesting. Now... Occasionally what happens is is that the child in the one activates the child in the other, and you've got two children who are relating to each other. And any time you've got two children relating to each other without an adult supervising, you usually end up in tears. So it is our job to learn to track what's going on. And rather than judge or condemn or say it shouldn't be like this, to wake up to this is what's happening and to bring a loving and compassionate and wise response to what's happening. Now, we, all of us sitting in here are in adult bodies. But it's a wrong assumption to assume that because we have adult bodies, we're always adult. And so what we need to learn, or what I have needed to learn, is how to watch when one moment I'm an adult, with decades of meditation experiences and resources, and the next moment I'm trembling like a child, with like feeling totally helpless and powerless and vulnerable, and I don't have resources. And so through working in a therapeutic way to understand how to hold both, I've learned how eventually to bring the skill and the resource that I have as an adult into this consciousness that feels vulnerable and powerless and scared and unable to self-regulate. So I relate to myself in the way that I need, that I maybe didn't get as a child. And when I do that, that consciousness shifts very quickly. And I come back into current time with access to the resources that I have, able to watch what's arising with these tools of meditation, which is observation. Observation is not what's needed when we are in that regressed state. In the same way, if you had a two-year-old child that's panicking or flipped out or hysterical, you would never put them in a room by themselves and say, figure this out on your own. That's what observation does. 
It says, figure this out on your own. A child needs engagement. When we are regressed into those early childhood states, we do not need just to watch what's going on. We need to interact with ourselves with a loving, caring, kind, warm-hearted response that is appropriate for the age of consciousness that we are in. We need to hold both. And if we're not able to hold both, then we need to go to somebody who can hold it for us. So, when I have been able to watch all of this, it's like, oh my goodness, this is so rich and so juicy and so complicated and so amazing. And yet, as I've been able to watch and track, there has been a deep and profound healing. And as there's a deep and profound healing, there's more and more sense of relaxing in my own skin and being content and not being so frightened. And so part of the reason why the situation for me was so evocative was because the lifestyle that I have was rubbing my nose right in the place where I was most raw. But because of whatever, conditions of faith or practice or having, I don't know what, getting the nourishment, enough nourishment to be able to stay with something that was so uncomfortable, I was able to watch what was going on until it began to shift. So this theme of love, sex, and awakening is so rich, and there's so much here. There's so many layers to it and so many avenues to it. It's not a simple conversation. And it absolutely has been like the territory of my life. So this is not just like me doing some kind of a Broadway production because it's evocative. It's just like this has been my life. This is the stuff that I've been struggling with for 40 years. So enough, more than enough. Let me stop and let's change the dynamic and have a few minutes of questions and feedback and conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.